0: Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. I've found a new person to add to my column of those that I dislike most in the Bible. Jonah, move over and meet this fellow in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then was first, after stirring up the water, stepped in and was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But when I'm coming another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? But, He who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Before we pray, I'd like to just mention a couple of prayer requests that weren't included this morning. Uh, Lenny's father, Jack, you know, has stage four liver cancer, and he, uh, the family was able to go up and be with him. And his dad, Jack, is a believer. He's ready to go, and he, his prayer is that he would be faithful to the end, that he would live well and die well to the glory of God. We want to remember to pray for him and for uh, Lenny's mom as well, that she will give, be given grace to deal with all those things. Aaron flies back tonight, uh, and uh, they would appreciate prayers for him and his travel and his safety as he makes those arrangements. I have not heard about Esther Carey arriving. Has anybody heard that she actually arrived? Yes. All right, good. Let's let's pray for these things and others. Father, we pray for Jack and, and also for Lenny's mom, would you help them to to really finish well may this be an occasion where even in his in his dying days he may glorify you and point others to the Lord Jesus we want to pray as well for Aaron because he travels into a dangerous place we ask that your hand might be upon him and that you might go before him thank you that Esther has arrived safely and we pray that your hand would be upon her as she serves you uh, so far away from friends and family. Father, we want to pray for Tom and the preaching of uh, this text. And we want to pray for the preaching of the word around the world today, that the Lord Jesus might be lifted up and that men might come to trust in him. In his name we pray.
1: Amen. In 1936, Dale Carnegie wrote the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. If you were to try to assign a parallel title to John chapter 5, it would be something like, How to Make People Want to Kill You. John doesn't actually tell us when the Jewish authorities started wanting to kill him, but he does say in verse 18 of this passage that based on the things that he says and does here, they wanted to kill him all the more. And from this point forward in the Gospel of John, that is a very frequently recurring theme. The Jews are doing everything that they can to be done with Jesus, to, to kill him. Men-pleasing was never part of Jesus' agenda, was it? And it shouldn't be part of our agenda either. Not only did Jesus not try to please men, he repeatedly made them so furious that they wanted to kill Him. Now, John 5 contains some of Jesus' most emphatic statements about His utter dependence on His Father and His absolute submission to His Father and all that He said and did during His earthly ministry. At the same time, this chapter records some of the clearest statements Jesus ever made about His equality, With his father. And that was the theme this morning in the worship. From verse 19 to the end of this chapter, we'll find a 29 verse discourse by Christ regarding his identity and his authority and the crystal clear witness that his father had provided to the world regarding his identity and authority. But the chapter begins in the passage we're looking at this morning with John's account of yet another miracle that Jesus performed. That miraculous healing tells us important things about Jesus all by itself. But we're only getting the beginning of the story if we don't recognize that that miracle was a catalyst for the confrontation that Jesus then had with the Jewish religious authorities from the Jerusalem temple that fills most of this chapter. Now, since I'm breaking chapter 5 up into at least three messages, I want to begin by jumping ahead briefly to draw your attention to the focal point of the chapter. And that focal point, I am convinced, is verse 23. That verse explains for what purpose God Gave, has given absolute authority over all life and all judgment to Jesus Christ, His Son. And that purpose in verse 23 is in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. That all may honor the Son in the same way and to the same extent that they honor the Father. And to make sure that we get the point he then says, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We'll look carefully at what that uh, declaration means next week, Lord willing, but I want to make sure that we have that, that very powerful purpose statement right out on the table up front as we begin the chapter because that is what this chapter is all about. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. As the chapter opens, Jesus returns from his home turf of Galilee to Jerusalem for another of the the great pilgrimage festivals. As Jesus makes his way toward the temple, he comes upon a pool of water at a place called Bethesda that's just outside one of the gates that enter into the temple compound. Now, this pool of water was widely believed... To have healing power. Verse 4, that actually doesn't show up in some of the most reliable manuscripts of this passage, is probably a scribal notation explaining the popular superstition that rank and file Jews had in mind about this particular pool of water. They believed that an angel sent from God periodically came and stirred up the waters, and when he did, anyone who was placed into the waters with an illness would be healed. Whatever you make of verse 4, the healing power actually demonstrated in this passage doesn't come from an angel. There were many people afflicted with many different ailments gathered at that pool, and the city was full of people for the festival. But Jesus focuses attention on just one man, a certain man who had been 38 years in his sickness, according to verse 5. Now Jesus, possessing divine knowledge that keeps showing up in this narrative in John, knew that this man had already been a long time in that condition. Jesus said to the man, do you wish to get well? The man responded with a request. And it's the same request he would have made to anybody who came up and offered to help him. He asked Jesus to carry him over to the pool and lower him into the water so that he could be healed. See, his faith was not in Jesus. His faith was in an urban legend about this body of water. Jesus did not talk to the man about living water as he had with the Samaritan woman. He didn't talk with him about the need to be spiritually reborn as he had with Nicodemus. And he didn't put the man into the pool as the man had requested. He simply said to the man, get up, pick up your bedroll, and walk! And the man did exactly that. The last part of verse 9 is key to what's going on in this passage. It says, now it was the Sabbath... On that day. There was nothing haphazard about this event. Jesus was being very strategic about how and when he performed this miracle, just as he always was. In this particular instance, I believe Jesus had determined to accomplish at least three things. First, to show compassion to a disabled and downcast man. Throughout the Bible, God declares Himself to be the supreme advocate of the the poor, the downtrodden, the sick, the despised among men. Every single time Jesus shows compassion to the downtrodden, He is manifesting His character, which is the character of God, the God who is compassionate and gracious. The second part of Jesus' agenda here as I see it is to identify Himself as the One who alone possesses the power to undo the curse. Again, there were many sick people at the pool on that day. He could have healed them all. He could have healed every illness in the world. But He didn't. As we've already seen, Jesus' purpose for the miracles that He performed during His earthly ministry was not to undo the curse There and then, it was to identify Himself as the One who will undo the curse. The One promised by the prophets. There can be no eradication of the curse until the cause of the curse has been set aside. And beloved, the cause of the curse is our sin. Our rebellion against a holy God. Jesus came the first time to seek and save that which was lost. The third part of Jesus' agenda on this day as I see it was to smoke out the graceless legalism of the Jewish religious leaders that are referred to in this passage simply as the Jews. Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath and He commanded him to pick up his bedroll and and carry it as He walked away Knowing full well that the Jewish authorities would consider both of those actions to be violations of the Sabbath, both the healing and the carrying. It's amazing to me that carrying a bedroll was considered work, but aggressively hunting down Sabbath offenders wasn't. Go figure. When He healed this man, Jesus was setting up a very important confrontation with the temple authorities, and they were predictably quick to take the bait. The Jewish authorities showed absolutely no compassion for this man. Instead of saying, well, oh, praise God, you're healed, let's celebrate, they said, it's the Sabbath. Sabbath. And it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. If he had left his bedroll on the ground, they probably would have accused him of littering. Bob will recognize that as a pun. The assertion by the Jewish leaders in verse ten is actually quite a stretch. They say, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your bedroll. Is that correct? The law required that every Israelite cease from all labor on the seventh day of each week. But the notion that the Sabbath commandment precluded every kind of physical activity, every physical effort, that's utter nonsense. See, the point of the Sabbath was for an Israelite to stop doing whatever he did to make a living on the last day of each week, in order to acknowledge that God is the one and only source of that living and of every good thing. It's the principle of the manna extended to a weekly observance. And Isaiah 58 declares that the Sabbath was the day for every Israelite to fast from doing his own pleasure in order to Delight in the Lord. Not only by coming aside to devote the day to the worship of God, but also by generously giving of all that God had placed in His hands to those, to others who had need. The Sabbath demanded a spirit of dependence on God and a spirit of trust in God as the one true provider of every good thing. It was never intended by God to become the legalistic nightmare that the the Jews had made it by this time. The rabbis of Judah, according to D.A. Carson, created out of thin air 39 different categories of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath that's in the Mishnah. In many of the details, that list of 39 categories was downright ridiculous. For example... It was considered a violation of the Sabbath to carry clothing from one place to another. But nobody said you couldn't put on multiple layers of clothing, right? So the savvy Jew would just put on four or five layers of clothes and go from one place to the other and then take the clothes off. Voila! Clothing transported. No violation. You know what's really hilarious to me about this passage? If this man had just poked a couple of armholes in his bedroll... And put it on, and walked out of the out of the, that that area. He would have left. He would have left the Jewish authorities with no no complaint based on their own silly list of rules. And he also would have been two thousand years ahead of his time at creating wearable bedding. This man did his best to dodge the bullet by pointing out that none of this was his idea in the first place that it was the one who had healed him that told him to pick up his bedroll. At that point, the Jewish leaders were happy to turn their crosshairs onto that person, but the man couldn't help him because he didn't know who that person was. Kind of amazing, he had been crippled for 38 years, he had been instantly healed, made vigorous enough not just to stand up, but to roll up his bedroll, throw it on his shoulder, and walk. But he didn't have a clue who had healed him. There's an amazing contrast between this guy and the blind man in chapter nine, who was much more discerning. Soon after this miracle, Jesus found the man he had just healed in the temple, and he said to him, "Behold, you have become well, do not sin any anymore so that nothing worse may befall you." I believe that Jesus said that to him because this guy was in the process of sinning. Jesus made it clear at other times that a given illness was not necessarily the result of a particular sin. In fact, He does that in chapter 9 with the blind. But the principle holds. Because illness may come as a chastisement from God for a specific sin, it's a good idea to not sin, that nothing else or worse may befall you. This is a good place, I believe, to point out that one way or another, the connection between illness and sin is universal. I'm not saying every specific illness is the result of a specific sin. What I'm saying, because I believe God's Word makes it crystal clear, is that all illness is the result of sin. How many times have you heard a Christian say, when they see someone suffering with an illness... I don't know why God allows such terrible suffering. We just have to trust that He knows what He's doing. We make it sound as if God is spending a lot of time doing damage control. Trying to hold at bay all the suffering and pain that has somehow invaded His creation. Beloved, we need to get this straight. This is important. God does not passively allow illness and suffering and death. God imposed illness and suffering and death on mankind and creation. It's called the curse. It's in the third chapter of Genesis. And the reason for the curse is our universal rebellion against our holy God. Every single time that we ask God to heal an illness, ours or someone else's, we're asking Him to make a a special dispensation. A one-off suspension of the curse that we all fully deserve. And we need to recognize that that's what we're doing. See, we're not asking God to fix some aberrant line of code that somehow slipped into His pain-free program for His creation. We're asking Him not to give us what we deserve. And don't get me wrong, it's good to ask God to heal an illness. Very good. It's a perfectly good request for a child of God to make of our good and gracious God. It's a request that God encourages His children to make in full confidence that He is able to grant that request if it will honor Him to do so. God delights in giving us previews of the once and for all deliverance from the curse that will take place when Jesus comes back. Jesus gave lots of people lots of those previews when He was here the first time. Precisely so that men would know that He's the one who will one day end the curse altogether. But it's pure arrogance for us to act as if God owes it to us to deliver us or those that we love from any given outworking of the curse that He imposed on us because we earned it. Knowing what we deserve unveils a thousand mysteries in this life. Jesus graciously gave this downcast man a very powerful preview of the coming kingdom and of its all-powerful king. But instead of being grateful, the man couldn't wait to throw Jesus under the bus so he could get out of trouble with the Jewish authorities. You know what the penalty for Sabbath breaking was in Exodus 31? Death. It's understandable why this guy was a little upset but his strategy left a lot to be desired. This man obviously found the Jewish authorities to be much more worthy of his fear than the one who had instantly restored him to health and vitality after four decades as an invalid. See, some people just don't get it. Most people just don't get it, and it does not matter what kind of miracle they see. See, showing very impressive things to blind people does not make them see. But the first place trophy for spiritual blindness in this passage goes to the Jewish religious leaders who should have known better. Their complete absence of either humility or compassion in this chapter is staggering. Now, of course, if you're familiar with the Gospel accounts, it's not surprising. It's very predictable. At every turn in Jesus' dealings with the religious leaders among the Jews, their concern for the letter of the law superseded any genuine concern for the spirit of the law. You know what the spirit of the law is? It's the character of God. The positive purpose of the law was to show God's people what it looks like when they actually live out His character in their dealings with each other and with Him. But the religious elite of Israel treated the law as an end in itself. As if law-keeping was the way, the truth, and the life. As if law-keeping was how they would become righteous in the eyes of God. And they spent a lot of time patting themselves on the back for how good they were at keeping the law. There was a definite pattern during Jesus' earthly ministry when it came to the accusations that were leveled against Him by the Jerusalem authorities, the temple authorities. Most of those complaints centered around the matter of the Sabbath. Most of them. And it's very instructive to sample how Jesus responded to those accusations. In Matthew 12, Jesus allowed His disciples to pick heads of grain from the grain fields on the Sabbath so they'd have something to eat. The Pharisees said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus reminded them that their forefather David, when he was fleeing from Saul, entered the temple and gave his men consecrated bread to eat that the law said was reserved for the priests. And then he he reminded them that the priests in the temple work every Sabbath. It's interesting that the the perfect high priest is reminding them that the, the priests work on the Sabbath. And then he said, Matthew 12, but I say to you, something far greater, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark 3, when Jesus encountered a man with a withered hand, the Jewish leaders quote were watching Him to see if He would heal the man on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse Him. These Sabbath Nazis were watching Jesus like a hawk, ready to pounce. Jesus said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life? Or to kill. You get the accusation? But they kept silent. The killers kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, Jesus said to that man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. And you know what the Pharisees did at that point? They started commiserating with the Herodians. With the Roman authorities to figure out how to do away with Jesus because they really didn't just want Jesus to be stoned to death for Sabbath-breaking. They wanted Him to be crucified. And that meant that they had to get the Romans involved. In John 7, Jesus said, "...if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken..." Are you angry with Me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In 2 Corinthians 3.6, Paul makes a very succinct but exceedingly powerful statement. He says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter of the law kills, but the spirit of the law, which is the character of God, gives life. While the Jews were busy imposing man-made rules on the downtrodden and calling those rules the law of God, Jesus was pouring out compassion on those same downcast people. While the Jews with hardened hearts were judging men according to appearance... Jesus was judging with righteous judgment. While the Jews were killing the hope of needful men and women with the burdensome yoke of external righteousness and seeking at the same time to kill the very Son of God, the Son of God was busy restoring life and vitality to needful men and women. While the Jews were using the letter of the law as a blunt instrument to violate the character of God and to indict the Son of God, Jesus was perfectly working out the character of God with every word He spoke and everything that He did. The character of the God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast Covenant, love, and truth. That's Exodus 34 6. I could show you numerous other passages just like these in the Gospel accounts where the Jews are waiting to see Jesus violate the Sabbath and they're pouncing and Jesus is responding. God desires compassion and not a sacrifice. It's very interesting wording. See, God wants, what God wants to see in us is His works, not ours. His, not ours. He wants to see His character played out through us. The law was never about earning God's favor. That's an epic fail. The law was about God's people showing God off. When the letter of the law gets in, in the way of displaying the character of God, You know what keeping the letter of the law becomes? It becomes sin. It becomes murderous. It kills the hope of men instead of giving life, and it might just kill their bodies in the process. If you pull a man out of a wrecked car, and then you let him bleed to death on your way to a hospital a couple of miles away because you believe it would be a sin to go faster than the posted speed limit on an empty street, you are violating the character of God for the sake of the letter of the law. If you're more concerned about the immigration status of your neighbor than you are about his eternal destiny, you are violating the character of God for the sake of the letter of the law. If you drive by a church that's building a new youth center and you begin ranting to yourself about how that money should have been spent on the poor, you're judging appearances instead of judging righteousness. You're imposing rules on other people that do not come from God. You're taking the Holy Spirit's seat Elevating the letter of the law over the character of God kills compassion, it kills kindness, it kills humility, and it kills ministry. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The real bombshell in the first 18 verses of John 5 comes in verse 17. When the Jews accuse Jesus of violating the law of the Sabbath, He answers... My father is working until now, and I myself am working. This is where Jesus cuts to the chase. (laughs) This statement presents a far greater provocation than the healing that Jesus did on the Sabbath, provocation to these Jews. The declaration by Jesus that his father is working and he himself is working on the Sabbath is the kickoff for everything else that Jesus is going to say about Himself in this chapter, and it's a lot. My Father is working until now and I myself am working. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, it means that God doesn't stop working on the Sabbath. And it means that Jesus is God. Genesis 2 says that after creating things, everything that we see in six days, God ceased from His work of creation on the seventh day that pattern of working for six days and ceasing from work on the 7th became the template by God's decree for the law of the Sabbath. As God's image bearers, the Israelites were to cease from their labors on the 7th day of each week. But when God stopped creating on the 7th day, it wasn't because He needed a break. It was because... His creation was completed and it was good. Isaiah 40 verses 28 and 29. It's the other do you not know part of that passage that that Carrie read this morning. Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired? God the Father never stops working. God the Spirit never stops working and beloved God the Son never stops working. Jesus is perfect God and perfect man. In his humanity Jesus shared our weariness and he needed to rest. In John chapter 4 when he came to the to the to Jacob's well it says Jesus rested. He was weary from the journey. But in His deity, as perfect God, He never rests. You know what would happen if He did? We'd be in very serious trouble. We saw in the opening verses of the prologue of John's Gospel this declaration about Jesus, the one John calls the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Is that pretty clear? You think that's comprehensive? Colossians 1 verses 15 to 17, Paul says, and Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. Is that clear? Is that comprehensive? He goes a step further. And He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. You know what that means? That means that if Jesus ever stopped working, we would vaporize. We would cease to exist. In Him, we we live and we move and we are. The writer of Hebrews begins his letter by declaring that Jesus, the Son of God, is the one through whom God made the world. And then he says in verses 2 and 3, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds all things by the power of His Word. Or the Word of His power. He's not just the Creator, friends. (laughs) Jesus is the sustainer of every created thing. And when Jesus said on the Sabbath, My Father is working until now and I Myself am working, (laughs) the Jewish authorities understood exactly what He was declaring about Himself. They didn't believe it, but they understood it. Verse 18 says, For this cause therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. I always find it curious that so many theologians believe Jesus never actually said that He's God. We'll see Him make that declaration very explicitly in chapter 8 of this Gospel. But the fact is, every single thing Jesus did and everything that He said proved that He's God. The Jews understood that Jesus claimed to be the unique Son of God if it were true would make Him equal with God. Listen to verse 24 of this chapter. It's very familiar. Most of you know it. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. So, What do you have to believe to have eternal life? You have to believe the Father's testimony concerning His Son. And what's that testimony? Well, in the verse just before that that I said is the focal point of this chapter, Jesus said, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. If we believe the testimony of God the Father concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, that means that we believe the Son is equal in honor to the Father. And He's equal in honor because He was in the beginning with God, and He was God, and He is God, and He will always be God. To believe that Jesus is Lord is to believe that Jesus is God. Creator. Sustainer. Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of life. Lord of judgment. God of very God. Jesus rarely came right out and said that He is God during His earthly ministry. Instead, He proved that He's God the Son by everything that He said and everything that He did. When it came to His identity and authority, He let the prophets do most of the talking. But the apostles, finishing out the calling of the prophets, Spoke very boldly about the divine identity and authority of Jesus. His deity, his Godness, and so should we. John declares the deity of Christ in the very first sentence of his gospel. I already showed you passages in which Paul and the writer of Hebrews also declared the deity of Christ in the first chapter of each of Colossians and Hebrews. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, in him, Kerry read this, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. How much? Does that make him a lesser God? No, it makes him God. Titus 2, verse 13 says, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. I could show you many more passages in the epistles. Brothers and sisters, a Gospel that does not boldly declare Jesus to be God is a false Gospel. Don't ever apologize for proclaiming the Son of God to be God the Son. The religious people of Jesus' day found that declaration so offensive that they became obsessed with killing Him. And brothers and sisters, the religious people of our day may find that same proclamation so offensive that they will kill you for making it. If they do, you will die for the most glorious of all causes. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine a better way to be ushered into the presence of our great God and Savior. Let's proclaim, as my brother Kerry said this morning, that the glory of God is the glory of Christ. Dear Father, this passage sets before us The one who saved us in terms that make it undeniable who he is. And the rest of this chapter continues to do the same. And everything Jesus did and everything Jesus said does the same. Father, the one who saved us is God. The one who saved us is the one who created us. He's the one who sustains us, who keeps the atoms in our bodies together every second of every day. Father, we we need to recognize who it is with whom we have to do. Make us bold, dear Father, in proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as God the Son. We pray this in His precious name.